So welcome to a special summer mini-series. This is the beginning of a three-part summer series. Can you all hear? Okay. Can you guys hear better than you heard on the bus in Poland? Okay. We had some issues on the bus. Um, this is, um, as I mentioned, a three-part summer series. And um, we're dedicating this to the memory of Lee Brockett, longtime supporter of CSP. I'm hoping Marion will come. I, she may be out of town for this program, but um, if you remember Lee, please um, hold his image in your mind. And um, I decided this would be a great series because it's about Israel. And we took a trip in 2014, which was our first CSP trip, and Marion and Lee came on it. So I have very good memories of Lee running around Israel with us. And we're really focused on Israel. Uh, Israeli art as a window to Israeli history and collective memory. And I thought it would be appropriate to honor Lee in that way. We are officially in our 19th year of programs. I recently saw a picture of what I looked like 19 years ago. Yeah, much younger. I was at Camp Ramah. I go up every weekend. It's like the Catskills. All these dads come up on the weekends, spend time with their families because many of the moms work, are working at Camp Ramah. And I, I was there early. And I was like, wow, look at all these. Uh, I was there for staff week. I was like, why are the kids up here right now? Like, those aren't the kids, that's the staff. So um, that's where I am in life. Anyway, it's 19 years of CSP. I wanted to thank you all for donating and supporting to CSP. If you haven't had your chance, you definitely have your chance to support CSP anytime, but particularly now through the end of August. This is when we raise most of our money so we can achieve our goal. You've seen I have a handout of all of our programs we hope to do this year. And um, most of our funding comes from you. We are very fortunate to get funding from the Federation and the Jewish Community Foundation. But if not for you, we would have ceased to exist a long time ago. And we could cease to exist before our 20th year. So please support us. It's good that I do these announcements because it gives people who are sneaking in late an opportunity to um, get in. If you're listening to our podcast, please consider making a donation to CSP at www.occsp.org and enjoy our programs. Uh, this series has three parts to it. Tonight's program is Israeli art as a window to Israeli history and collective... Oh, did I have it wrong? Tonight is what is Israeli culture? I should get it right. So let me get it right. Tonight's program is what is Israeli culture, a roller coaster ride through Israeli contemporary culture. Tomorrow at lunch, where we'll be, we will not be here, we'll be at University United Methodist Church in Irvine. It's very close to here. Uh, many of you came to a program there recently, so please get there early. We have a big crowd. The topic there will be Israeli art as a window to Israeli history and collective memory. Our closing program will be back here tomorrow night, entitled Adam the Adama, Human and Land, Exploring Relationship Between the People and the Land of Israel as Reflected Through Art. So we have a lot of art stuff going on this year. Sometimes it's planned, sometimes it just evolves that way. Um, like no place to put my stuff here. Yeah, no, it's okay. I'll try and figure out what I want to mention to people. Um, we were very fortunate to recently receive a grant from Jewish Community Foundation of Orange County. And um, with that grant in the arts, you'll be hearing about, I mentioned it before, we have our first one-month artist in residence coming uh, in May. Named, his name is Toby Khan. And if you are an artist, please make sure to email me because there'll be a special program for artists 
only, and it's uh, called an Artist Bait Midrash. And for the rest of us, there'll be lectures and programs and hands-on workshops. And I hope you will support us. If you are a CSB patron, you will get the first opportunity to join us for a trip up to the Broad and LACMA with Toby Khan. Um, we're going in a bus. We can limit it to about 30 people, so patrons will get the first opportunity. And if there's space, we will open it up to the general community as well. As I mentioned earlier, we are back from our CSP adventure for the summer, Lithuanian Poland. Who came? Who came to the trip? Okay, they're here. They're back. Um, ask them about their trip and ask them what they learned. They will probably tell you something like it's complicated. And that's how they'll start. Um, why do we have Shirel here? Because actually Shirel fits into our tours. In 2014 we were in Israel, in 2017 we were in Israel, and in 2020 we're going back to Israel. And each one we've had an event with Shirel. In 2017, who came with me on the graffiti art tour of southern Tel Aviv? Ah, just some of us here. We had, you had many choices on the trip, and it was so good. I said to Shirel, can you come to Orange County and do programs here? And she said yes. And then when I was planning for 2020, I made sure to add two art programs to Shirel. So those of you who are coming, um, you'll have a choice. One day will be a program, a tour of the Israel Museum in Jerusalem um, entitled Visual Identities. From, and um, then will be a tour in Tel Aviv at the Tel Aviv Art Museum, the fascinating relationship between the Israeli art world and the Zionist narrative. So many choices, those are just some of the choices. If you're wondering if we still have space for that trip, the answer is we sold out in 24 hours, so then we had a wait list, and then we almost sold out the wait list. So we have basically one or two rooms left if you want to join us in Israel in October, a year from this October. See me, and if we still have space, we're happy to have you. Um, the other art trip, the other tour I want to mention is Italy, December 2021 with Mark Michael Epstein, Venice, Florence, Padua, and Rome. We can only take 30 people. I was on the phone with Mark. He's planning it right now. Sometime in the near future, we will unveil what the program looks like. If you're on our list of people interested, which has about 63 people, you'll get the first shot to register before we sell out. Okay. Um, we are recording tonight, so please make sure that um, you don't make any funny sounds in the audience. No yelling, screaming, don't chew your gum loud, those weird things, you know what I'm talking about. Please turn off your cell phones, thank you, or put them on to vibrate mode, while I tell you a little bit about Shirel. Other than being a requisite on our Israel trips, um, using drawing, sculpting, video and sound, Tel Aviv-based artist Shirel Horovitz creates performances and installations exploring cities, communities, and the relations between people and space. She earned her BFA from the Bezalel Academy of Art and Design in Jerusalem, and her MA with distinction from the Interdisciplinary Art Program at Tel Aviv University. She exhibited in major galleries and art festivals in Israel and across the United States, and is currently, it says currently, I don't know if it's correct, exhibiting a sculptural installation at Batyam Museum of Art. It's till the end of August. So if you're going to Israel next week, go to the uh, go see the installation in the Batyam Museum of Art. Alongside her art practice, Shirel lectures, leads art tours, teaches art, is an art consultant to a variety of private groups and institutions, among them Batel Academy of Art and Design. Alma, I, this is the first one I always read it. Her knowledge and passion and love of all that is art, Tel Aviv and Israeli history are nothing less than contagious. Know that when I picked Shirel up in, in, from the airport in Long Beach, she immediately said, why aren't you doing a boutique art trip to Israel for 15 people? I will lead it and we'll just go and eat good food and meet with artists. And I said, okay, we will do that. So look for a trip coming up 
that'll be a boutique art trip to Israel with Shirel. But for now, please join me uh, in welcoming Shirel to Orange County for your first appearance for Community Scholar Program. Thank you. Okay, so hi everyone, good evening. If for some reason I move, I do this, tell me, okay? Wave at me and I'll go back. So, um, very excited for this lecture. I'm sure that since this been, has been sitting here for a while, you kind of skimmed through the text. It's one of the only two pieces of text that you'll be seeing tonight, because the rest is in text. Um, do you recognize in that image what you're seeing? So we have the Star of David on top, and then Hebrew script below saying, Am Israel Chai. Have you heard that sentence before? The nation of Israel lives. It's actually, um, and I'm gonna start, you can see this lecture is gonna be divided uh, into uh, different sections, and I'm gonna use each medium to talk about a different aspect of Israeli culture, trying to kind of paint a picture of what, what this is and what are the building blocks that build it. And this is a tag, this is a graffiti that is the most common one around Israel. You can find it everywhere. And if you look at the right-hand side of uh, this, you can see that people added stuff. If you look at the top one, can you see someone added a question mark after, which turns it from the nation of Israel lives to a question, does the nation of Israel live? And below, if you're looking over here, there's an added word, Am Israel Chai Behodu, the nation of Israel lives in India, okay, because many of us travel, me too, after the army to India. Um, and the last one below, if you see, there's a large uh, addition uh, below Am Israel Chai, it's lived, Am Israel Chai Beoni, uh, nation of Israel lives in poverty. Okay, so you can see there's a lot of humor and it's playing on a sentence that everyone knows, adding stuff that is contemporary, that is right now, and we're going to try and explore all of these things. And a moment before we do, I kind of want to share some of the climate uh, that is kind of going on in Israel since um, the previous uh, government where Miri Regev was, uh, became Minister of Culture. This is the poster as it was advertised in Hebrew. I'm gonna explain it in a moment, but I just wanted you to see it. On the left-hand side, I have a quote from Plato. I'm sure many of you know that Plato uh, basically didn't want artists and poets in the city, right? And there's something very interesting about that because it means he understood very deeply the power of artists and poets, right? If someone doesn't have power, why would we mind having them in the city? But that quote from Plato kind of tells us uh, that he recognized that power. And what's written here in the uh, black little box is about the, loyal, the loyalty bill in the culture, okay? Uh, and when uh, funding will be taken from uh, art, uh, whether it's movies, whether it's music, stuff like that, fine arts. And you can see over here, I'm gonna say, it's if you... Um, uh, I, I lost the word in uh, English. Uh, like if you, um, yeah, if you disgrace, if you disgrace one of the symbols of uh, the state of Israel, if you call for like racism, if you deny the existence of 
the state of Israel as a Jewish and democratic state, if you entice for violence or terror, or if you mark the uh, Independence Day as a day of mourning. Okay, so all of these, as of two years ago, uh, once this bill was passed, are a reason funding could be taken away. And I'm showing that because it's a climate uh, we're living in in Israel in terms of the culture, and we're going to see how culture is a constant challenge, or arts are the co a constant challenge on the norms, and how this uh, can be quite uh, an effective thing. Okay, so what we're starting, we're starting with the Magen David, because it's a symbol, the Jewish Star of David, we all know, and we're going to take that one symbol and see uh, what role it plays. Uh, on the left-hand side, you can see uh, the flag from the Zionist Assembly, 1944. The flag as we know it today was at first just the flag of the Zionist movement. It, there were different options to have an Israeli flag, uh, and that one won over the other options. Just for instance, uh, the Theodor Herzl uh, had a different proposition for a flag. We didn't take his, we took this one. Um, and on the right-hand side, we're seeing a very famous photo of, um, in 1948, during uh, independence war, the conquering of Um el-Rashrash, which was actually what we know today as Eilat, and putting up the flag as the sign of the conquering. They didn't have the flag, they literally ripped a piece of fabric and painted it. Now, these are both all in black and white. What are the real colors here? Blue and white, okay? And we'll play with that. We'll see, notice, like, it was obvious to you, right? So these symbols, these things that we share as a collective memory, we know the color, we know the shape, and they play a role. Um, in what we see. We're looking here at a work by Shmuel Beck from 1962, The Ghetto, and you can see he's painting the ghetto and what's in the middle? A Star of David, kind of a missing piece. Um, and here, if you had to assign a color, because the colors here are kind of muted, but if you had to assign a color to this Star of David, what, what color would you give it? Black or? Okay, let's, let's see, let's go a little further with the colors and see, okay? We're looking here at works from the 80s by Moshe Gilshuni, a very uh, prominent Israeli artist. He died um, just three years ago now. And I want to start with the work on your left, okay? Um, and we're seeing here two major symbols. What are the symbols that we're seeing? Star of David and? A swastika, okay? And we have a Jewish artist painting a Star of David and a swastika in the same painting. And in the Star of David below, we have, um, we have in Yiddish, Yiddische Kinder, okay? Jewish or Yiddish uh, children. Um, and above, we have in Hebrew text, Hashem Natan, God gave, which is the beginning of a sentence, Hashem Natan, Hashem Lakach, Yehishem Hashem Evorach, God gave, God took, may his name be blessed, which people say when they hear uh, someone has passed. And he's asking here a very, uh, a visually very striking question, okay? Because the swastika, who does that symbol belong to? The Nazis. And you see below, what color is the Star of David there? Yellow. So I'm going back one. If you had to assign a color to a painting called The Ghetto with a missing Star of David, what color would you assign? Yellow, right? But who gave us the yellow Star of David? The Nazis. The Nazis. Okay, and it's a very interesting thing because 
Gershuni played a lot with this question of these symbols, where do they come from and who do they belong to and how do we play with them? And artists very often do that. They question the way we look at symbols and he's mixing them up here and asking, and you can see above is a Star of David in black. We're looking here at a work by Pinchas Cohen Gunn, uh, originally from Tunisia. Um, in a series he did uh, and was exhibited in uh, 92 in the uh, Turkey Biennial in Istanbul, the Elishmot, and these are the names, and he created paintings um, for each of the communities. And one of the very interesting things are when we think of the Holocaust, we don't think of Tunisia or Libya, right? Um, but it did reach there too, and he creates these works. Very, very, very simple. His, uh, his kind of very schematic figure of a human became a central to his art as kind of saying any person, okay? You can't say this or that. It doesn't have any other identifiers. And the Star of David here is black, touching uh, not only on the tragedy, but also this issue of not seeing or, or not mentioning as much Jews that aren't from Europe when it comes to the Holocaust and kind of putting that uh, in the front. And we're looking here at a work by David Ginton, uh, Battle of Pilegish uh, means concubine, and it's a story uh, that is in the book of Judges. And David Ginton says about this painting that it was actually inspired by um, this chapter when his daughter that was uh, uh, in fifth or sixth grade came... Um, came home with homework looking at this biblical story, which basically tells the story of someone that came with his concubine to the area of uh, the Binyamin tribe in Israel, and she was raped. And because of that, there was kind of a civil war, and the Benjamin uh, tribe was almost wiped out during this war. And that struck him uh, in a very potent way. Of, uh, and if we're looking at 1995, what happened in 1995? the assassination of uh, Yitzhak Rabin, the Israeli prime minister. And you can see here what happened to the flag and the Star of David. This painting is split by a bullet that's in there. Okay, so once again, using a symbol we all know, um, the name of the painting is actually written below, Pilegish Bagiva, and bringing the biblical story in. Now I want to take a specific test case and look at this Magen David and what happens to it in, in public space. Have any of you been here? This is Rabin Square, used to be the square of the kings of Israel in Tel Aviv. This is what it looks now these days with the pool and this, uh, this sculpture that was actually, and we're looking here at the initial um, uh, plan drawings for it, uh, was uh, inaugurated in 1975, designed by one of Israel's uh, major sculptors, Igal Tomalkin. And you can see it's designed as two kind of triangles or pyramids on top of each other, the lower part smaller than the upper part to kind of resemble the, the, the shift and the shake through the Holocaust. And this is, was, is actually a memorial for the, the Holocaust and and Shoavet uh, Kuma, the Holocaust and the revival, okay, and the building of the state. Um, and it, at first, it had also these yellow sheets uh, inside. These days, you can see it's completely uh, uh, open. Uh, this is what it looks like, like from above. Okay, so you can't see it's a Magen David when you're over there, but from an aerial point of view, it's a Magen David. This this sculpture 
people were crazy annoyed by it. It's too, um, for two reasons. First of all, having it too um, uh, abstract to commemorate the Holocaust, okay? And we're in a time in Israel where there is a move towards abstraction, but people had a very, very time, hard time with it. And the other thing, it being in a main square in Tel Aviv, and like, how do you hold, have a sculpture to commemorate this horrific event and have it like in a piazza where you'll have a ton of other things? It's still there. You can see you can actually walk through it, so it's open uh, at the bottom. And you can see over here on the medal the three uh, stars of David, and what's written there is Zachol, remember. Most people there these days don't even know it's in memory of the Holocaust. And I want to show you a few interesting things. So you can see it from above. And this is, these are the celebrations of uh, uh, Maccabi, uh, the, the basketball team Maccabi, winning the Israeli championship in 2013. Um, and this is a quote from, uh, from the newspaper that day. 100,000 people celebrated with Maccabi. And then Oscal, who's a Spanish non-Jew player for the Maccabi team, is quoted saying, my heart is yellow forever. Now just notice, because Maccabi, their uniform is yellow. So it's this all happening in that place where the color yellow has one specific meaning and is completely moving to a different meaning. Um, and, uh, and we have a non-Jew talking about his heart being yellow. And it's interesting to think the place that sports take and, and what like, brings us out into the streets. This is another event in uh, Kikar Rabin, in Rabin Square in 2013. And you can see people sitting on top. And you see what I wrote, the protests of African refugees. Uh, basically, Israel has a population of refugees from mainly Eritrea and Sudan uh, in very strange, undecided, torturous conditions in terms of uh, uh, their status in Israel. And I'll just say, same as in the US, I can refer to this population as refugees or as infiltrators or in, as asylum seekers, right? Each word having a totally different connotation because if I call them refugees, I'm thinking of where they escaped from and it's a positive connotation. If I say infiltrators, I'm thinking of people entering my space and then the first thing I want to do is push them out, right? And if I say asylum seekers, it's leaning towards the legal, possibly objective, slightly still more positive uh, word. And we have those three words um, in Hebrew, and I'll just say, um, it's very interesting. Two things here are interesting. First of all, depending on what news source you'd uh, read, in Israel, they'd choose the word refugee or infiltrator, okay? We, that's the same in Israel, I say, as it would, would be here. And the other thing is, look where, the, this is the main place where protests will happen, and look at where the refugees are sitting and where they're protesting. Okay, um, and the, the symbol, the Star of David is here kind of playing an additional role. Okay, um, we're continuing with this symbol with an artist named Zoya Chilkastinandi, who's actually, she's, uh, she does many things. She's actually a painter. She had just a month ago her debut show in New York uh, um, opened with crazy amazing success. And But this is a work from early stages in the, her career. What are we looking at? What is the symbol? The Star of David, but the way people would wear it. Once again, it's taking the Nazi uh, symbol of Star of David, but over here she turned it into 18 karat gold 
uh, brooches. They are brooches, they're made out of real gold. And once again, this question of a symbol, who does it belong to and how do we play with it? Now, this is extremely provocative, hard sometimes to see, like, but, but she's playing with what was given as a sign of shame, can we wear it as a sign of pride, right? And just so kind of we're clear on this weirdness of who gives us what symbols and how do we use, the laws of uh, Jewish migration to Israel are actually based on the Nazi laws. They're not based on the Jewish Orthodox laws of who's Jewish, okay? So according to the religion, the Jewish religion, uh, you, your mother needs to be Jewish in order for you to be considered Jewish, right? If we're talking strictly Orthodox traditional religion. The Nazis, however, if you had a third generation back grandmother or grandfather uh, Jewish, you were deemed Jewish. And so the Israeli law of return for Jews is based on the Nazi laws, okay? So think again how crazy uh, that is. And suddenly these symbols of what do we adopt uh, become even more potent. Okay, um, so a synagogue in Nevet Kalim, one of the settlements in Gush Katif, the area that was, um, um, choice of words, evacuated, pulled out of, deported in 2005 the, in the Gaza Strip. And we're looking at the left-hand side at one of the major synagogues there. And on the right-hand side, what you're seeing is in the center, the, the image of the synagogue after it was destroyed. And you can see once again how powerful it is to use that symbol and how people use it to say a story that like, with this, I think it's more than I could ever explain in words in terms of the feeling of destruction of that community and the choice to tell that story. The next image is slightly hard to, for viewing. I think it's still important um, and yeah. Okay, so two different artists. Uh, on the left-hand side, you're seeing Ravit Mishli, um, and you can see she's taking uh, the Jewish Star of David but turning them into weapons, okay? And it's people really questioning what the meaning of the symbol is today um, and how are we using our identity in the world. Um, and really, like, if you look, it's knives over here. Very violent. Uh, uh, weapons, and if you look, she put it on this makeshift table, and notice the color of the chairs, right? Blue. So still very subtly playing with this idea of the blue and white, right? Um, and you can see on the right-hand side uh, a piece, it's a still of a video by Erez Israeli, Leil Shishi, Friday night. Um, I won't show the video, um, but you can see what Star of David it is, and he literally sews it to his chest. He's a, uh, yeah. Um, but you can see in both of these, first of all, the choice of color, but also the way art in a very, very harsh way, and Israeli art is constantly questioning our identity. Where do we belong to? Where are we going from? And I want to end this part, this section, um, with this work, which is a stills from a video called The Polish Trilogy by Yael Bartana. Um, for those of you who will come tomorrow lunchtime, We'll be talking about that a little more. But what are the two symbols over here? A Star of David, right? 
and the Polish, uh, the Polish eagle actually, and the color she's using there is red. Um, it's from a trilogy called And Europe Will Be Stunned, and it's all about the Polish asking the Jews to return to Poland, and she creates a new symbol that infuses the Polish and the Jewish together, once again questioning where do we belong and what are our roots and how they're fused or not uh, together. Okay. Now you know why I call this a roller coaster ride, because <laughs> uh, a lot. So I wanted to move to Israeli dance and look a little at what it tells us about religion, community, and individualism. And this is a photo from uh, the Declaration of the State after the UN uh, Declaration. And we're very familiar with those circles, right? Dancing, dancing in circles. There's nothing kind of. Um, knew about that, and uh, have you heard of Israeli folk dance, right? Likudei Am, you might have participated once in such a circle, they're usually circle uh, dances. There's actually a debate if they can be called folk dances for two reasons. First of all, originally, although we call them Israeli, it's people that were coming from Eastern Europe uh, and introducing their traditional dances in Israel during that time. Um, they were Jews, they were coming to Israel, but the dances themselves came from Romania, from Russia, from those places. The other reason there's a question mark on it because many of them were later choreographed. Uh, Rivka Sturman is one of the early uh, choreographers of these types of dances, and then they are definitely Israeli, but there's a question if you can call them folk dance, if someone we know who invented them. But this whole idea of um, of dancing in a circle is also very, very equalizing, right? In a circle, the center is empty, everyone is equally distant from the center and we're moving together and that's very, very much fitting also the foundation of the state in that time and a community that is coming together. Uh, so it started with those and developed all the way, I don't know if any of you heard to uh, the Carmiel Festival of Dance, which is started in the 80s and is running until today in Carmiel, a town in the north of, uh, of Israel, with dances that are, they can be circular, they can be group dances, or they can be partner dances. Uh, traditional and modern you have here from uh, different times. At the same time in Israel we have um, Another angle, Baruch Hagadati is one of, uh, also a major choreographer coming from Russia, but fascinated with uh, Jews from Yemen that have come uh, to Israel and creates uh, these dances. He was also a photographer, so these photographs are by him that he called the Yemenite ecstasy. Um, today we'd probably look at it and also talk at, about appropriation. And I'll get to that a little further on because it's basically a Jew from Russia looking at the Yemenite community and the way they dance and taking that culture and creating dances from it. I want for a moment, one moment, ta -ta -ta -ta. Uh -huh. 
So um, while we're watching, usually when we think of Israel and we think of the pioneers and we think of the people that come, we always think of Eastern Europe. But at the same time, beginning, like beginning of 1920s, we had a Yemenite community working the land, being in Israel, uh, pulling a lot of the weight. Uh, and many times we don't even know that. This isn't a choreography by Baruch Haggadati. It's rather simply a classical uh, um, video of Yemenite Jews uh, dancing. And we're going to see the influences of this a little later on. Um, one moment. You're seeing all my like little secrets with this, right? But I don't want it to keep playing. Okay. Where are we? We're here. Yes? Yes? Yay. Okay. Um, next we have Inbal Dance Company, which exists until today, and actually it has ties to LA um, in various ways in this area. But it was directed by Sarah Levi Tanai, who is actually uh, from Yemenite descendant, and created contemporary dances. When I say contemporary, I mean for that time, we're in the 50s here, uh, that were based on her own tradition. Now, this dance company succeeded around the world. However, in Israel, very often, uh, it was looked down upon because it's not the Western culture. And we're starting to see also through the dance this kind of um, aversion or a, a kind of rivalry between the, the East and the West, uh, which is, we're going to see more of that. But this dance company, which exists until today and succeeded very much in Europe, in Israel, people didn't uh, see it so favorably. Um, we have, um, in, in the mid-60s, we have the founding of Bacheva Dan Dan Dance Company, which some of you might have heard about. The reason it's called Bacheva is because the woman that made that happen was the Baroness Bacheva de Rothschild, okay? So she made that happen, and she actually brought Martha Graham to run uh, this dance company, um, who later told us Hadnarin, and kind of we know um, it took off from there. Now, before I look a little more into dance, I want to kind of move away from professional dance to see a few modes of dancing uh, in our tradition. So you see above uh, two photos from the Hasidic uh, tradition of dancing. Once again, it's very much a collective, even though in, in, in the Hasidic tradition we have a rabbi, which is the center, and then the community moves in this ecstasy as a collective around the rabbi or around the rabbis over there, but you can see the individual isn't the issue here, right? It's, it's coming together and dancing. And below we're seeing uh, photos from weddings by mod of modern Orthodox, uh, and also the dances are circular, um, and kind of people are dancing together. And at the same time, looking at the same like year, we're in the 2000s here, also this one. This, these aren't old photos. Um, we're seeing a few photos from different raves, okay? Instead of a rabbi, we have a DJ, right? God is a DJ, if you ever heard that. Um, and people are dancing, but they're no longer dancing in a circle, right? They're dancing individually as a crowd, but it's actually very, very similar in that way to the formation of the Hasidic uh, dancing. And here we have a weird combination of a Hasidut or a sect of Hasidut, uh, which is, it's called the Nachman Hasidut. It's like a very specific uh, story. If you've been in Israel, you might have seen their trucks and it's kind of, I'd say it's trance music uh, with very religious lyrics and people dancing and skipping 
uh, on the trucks and around and kind of merging uh, these two cultures. And what I want us to do, I want us to see, to look for a moment at a, a, moment, at a piece from Bacheva Dance Company that was very, very controversial in uh, 1998. Uh, one moment. And I'm going to show parts and skip as we go along. Ashlayat Hakoach Vekavdak Shemafrid Ben Shigaon Ushfiut Hapanika Shemahori Hatzhok Vedukiyum Shel Ayefut ואלגנטיות. recognize the song, some of you? Okay, so Echad Miodea from the Haggadah becoming, this is a, a Bacheva dance company, and do you notice how they're dressed? Ultra-Orthodox, right, the dancers? If I manage to move this, it will be really nice if my video will. No, it's not, it's not talking with me for some reason. So, yeah, I know, I'm trying to drag it. It's not doing that. But okay, um, so this was performed, and as it goes along, it goes through all the echad miyodea, and each time they take a piece of clothing off, all the way to naked. Um, so you can imagine what a row that made between the religious and the secular community. But I also want to take a moment to realize a few things. First of all, you don't play with that if you're not connected to your culture, right? It's Jewish, Israeli people reckoning with their own culture. What is one? Who is one? What are these numbers? And how does it play a role uh, in, our, in our life? Um, I'm going to close this if I find which one it is. Oh, okay. There's a lot of technology going on here. Yes. Okay. Is it not moving? Okay. Another, um, another dance company, La Kata Kibbutz by uh, Rami, Meir, the, Rami Be'er, the Kibbutz Dance Company, which started actually with Rina Scheinfeld, who's still alive and kicking. She's 90-something and a pretty amazing uh, woman. Um, and one of their works, uh, Ben Kodesh Lechol, I want to show you a piece of that. One moment, I'm sorry about this like slower pace. Uh, here. Okay. Full screen, full screen. Okay. So, Chol in Hebrew means two things. Chol is sand in Hebrew, but it's also the opposite of holy, 
but it's not profane. So in Hebrew or in English, we have holy and unholy or holy and profane. In Hebrew, we also have holy and mundane. So I don't know if you know, but for instance, we call there's Shabbat, Saturday, which is the holy day, and Yemei Chol, the mundane days, okay? So in Hebrew, Chol has two meanings. It's both sand and the mundane. The name of this piece by Rami Be'er is called Ben Kodesh Lechol, which is between holy and sand or the mundane, and it's actually also a verse from Havdalah, from the ritual uh, at the end of Saturday, dividing between the holy and the mundane. And you can see what he's doing here. He's actually transitioning the word into a medium, into sand itself. And in Israel, very often, sand also symbolizes, I'd say, the rivalry between secularism and uh, religion, if you think of Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, so very often it's the Jerusalem stone and it's the Tel Aviv sand beach. And he's playing here with the weight of sand. If you think of it in sand, we can also not, uh, uh, you, you can't have roots in sand, right? On the other hand, sand is uh, what was used for when God uh, said to Abraham that he'll multiply his descendants like sand upon the beach. So he's taking all of this and all these connotations and playing uh, with them in this uh, in this dance piece. Uh, uh, uh. I wish there was. Okay. Um, we're looking here at a work by uh, Renan Raz, uh, another choreographer, a piece from a, a work called "You Make Remake." Okay, in a world where we're constantly exposed to so much. And nothing is really original at this point. We're constantly playing with existing things. And you can see uh, on the top, this whole uh, uh, dance piece has YouTube behind it running with different scenes and a, and a choreographer, uh, choreography interpretation of that in live. So you're on stage, what you're seeing is both the screen and the dance. And over here on the top is a very traditional uh, dance when in a, in a wedding, in a Hasidic uh, wedding of Gur. Uh, it's a specific sect in Hasidut, and it's a very strict one where the rabbi kind of dances with a bride. She's completely covered. You can't see her. And the way they dance is he holds kind of a string from her dress. It's a very, it's kind of harsh to see, uh, but that's the tradition. And below the choreography is, becomes a very erotic dance uh, in Spanish dress with them holding the string. So you can see once again this play uh, between the tradition um, and, uh, and the contemporary culture. Um, now we said religion and until now what we've been seeing are dance companies, secular dance companies, and actually there's been a shift and change and I want to talk about two uh, very interesting dance companies of religious people. Uh, and I'm going to start with Ensemble Ka'et. I'm going to show you a piece uh, from their work. And then, where is it?
So they're dancing all the way into uh, the stage, basically, in this uh, video. And these, they're not dressed up uh, as religious. They are religious. Their group, one of the, the uh, subtitle of their group is Kol Atzmotai Tomarna, All My Bones Will Speak, which is a verse actually from tradition. Uh, and if you know, if you've ever seen or if you've ever shuffled or moved uh, during, uh, during prayer. There's actually a lot of uh, uh, texts about that. And we have religious people trying to figure out, you know, dance and their bodily <laughs> presence uh, in the world and, and looking at religion from a different place. And the last thing I want to show you in terms of dance and religion is by um, a female. Uh, group of dancers. It's only female. Their performances are only for women. Um, I can show this video because it's online, so it's parts that they have agreed to. But if you think of it, the presence of female body within religious life is a whole thing upon its own. And in this piece, uh, they're dealing with that. The name of the piece by this choreographer, I think the name will appear in a moment. It's in, in Yiddish, actually. Um, and it's called A Feather in My Hat. Um, and I don't know how much you're aware of it, but religious women cover their hair. It's a whole issue uh, uh, within uh, um, Jewish religion of like, what do we do with the hair? And the hair is a sexual uh, part of the body, and they're playing with that over here. Um, and the moment, I mean, if, if you look at this, religion plays, I, I don't think you'd, we'd first imagine to see so much of religion in contemporary dance, but it kind of finds its way in. It's part of uh, uh, the tradition, and it, and it finds its way into the stages even today. You can see here their hairs, can you see? They're braided together. I don't know with the light if you're, can you see it? Is it, okay. Okay. Let's close this and go back to this. Okay. So we're moving to film and TV to talk a little bit about military culture and gender. I mean, gender came out obviously also uh, in what I just spoke about. And I want to start with a movie uh, that came out in 1955. And funnily enough, the paper that where they wrote about it, it's like uh, it could even have been written today. So you can see this is another proof we can produce good films even if we're, we still use stars from abroad because they were using it was a co-British-Israeli uh, production uh, directed by a British uh, uh, director. Uh, and it was a story, uh, or three intertwined stories about a specific hill in the battle in 1948. But look what's written there. Do we have governmental or public supervision on, on movies, or does every individual in society have the right to choose their material? What if the film represents our country overseas and is not suitable to our national interests? Are we obliged to come to terms with it uh, and have no law to prevent it? Now, that's from 1955. Remember what I started with the laws of loyalty and art and how every time a movie goes to the Oscars, an Israeli movie, or to Cannes Festival or to Tribeca, there's this whole issue uh, and sometimes funding is pulled. It's the same questions. Do Israeli movies need to represent a narrative or can people create movies with their own agenda and how do we relate to that? Um, 
So we have that from 1955. Do you want to see a clip from 1955? Sure. Let's. <laughs> uh, one moment. We'll go to movies. Just so we have the gist. What I want to do, I'm going to show you another clip, and I'm going to show it before I explain what it is, okay? And uh, what I want to do is for you to kind of uh, be aware of, I'd say, the gist, or what is the feeling uh, in this clip, even... Sergio Constanza, Kashara Ichida. Sergio Constanza, the Sherot Kama Paken. That's the Sergio, Kiana Paken. Alta Minlo. Stock, Victor. Tagili. Kiana Paken. Amitrim mit Kervim and Lamutsal. Eze Oda Tamavir Bekesher. Bekesher Lama. So, what does, what is, is this a serious feeling? No, right? It looks like a complete parody, uh, unlike the 1955, which was a very, very uh, serious setting. And actually, we're looking at a movie that is specifically referencing that. The name, and it became a cult movie, the name is Giv'at Chalfonei Na Ona. So the movie from 1955 was called Hill 24, Hill, Hill 24 is Not Responding. This movie is called Chalfon Hill is Not Responding. It was written by Asi Dayan, a very famous actor, a uh, scriptwriter uh, who passed away also about five years ago. Uh, and it's a complete parody about duty reserve. And why 1974? What do you think inspired this in 1974? Exactly. So we have the Yom Kippur War in 1973 that really shifts the way people are relating to the army, to what it is uh, to be in the army. Um, and it creates these different types of... Uh, of movies. Um, one moment. Huh? Yes. Okay, so you can see uh, the names are very, very similar. The gist is completely, completely different. And then we have a little later in 1986, uh, a full length like movie that was out uh, in the cinemas commercially, but it was actually produced by the IDF. Okay. Uh, it was called Shtetz Baot Mitzidon, Two Fingers from Tzidon, Tzidon, a city in Lebanon uh, that is very famous because of the Lebanon War. Um, and you can see about this movie, and, and just realize how weird that is. You have the IDF producing a full-length commercial movie. Uh, any Israeli, I'd say, my age and up, I'm 40, my age and up, can sing the main song of this movie. Okay, even though it came out in 1986, that's how successful it was. It was a blockbuster. Most people didn't know it was produced by the IDF. So we have this weird relationship. Um, and what I want to say, just notice, uh, we haven't seen any women anywhere, right? I mean, they just don't exist. 
Um, we'll get to that in a moment. And I'm skipping to the 2000s, to movies that some of you might have heard of or seen. Uh, Yossi and Jagel, which was the first movie that looked at uh, gay relationships uh, in, the, in the army. Okay. Um, so, and Buffo, which really is talking about the pulling out of Lebanon and touched a lot on the, the trauma and hesitation of soldiers pulling out. And Wolf with Bashir, which looks at the whole events of Sabra and Shatila and really the trauma uh, after it. I'll just, can you tell me in a show of hands if any of you saw one of these movies? Okay. I'm, I'm asking. They're all suddenly a shift in angle where it's no longer about the heroism of the soldiers, but it shifts to their personal life, okay? Uh, to, to the difficulties and to being human within, um, within this situation. But once again, we're not seeing any women, right? Just, they don't exist. Oops, they do. Um, but it took a while. Look, 2005 and 2014, Free Zone, uh, which also won quite a few prizes, um, uh, is a story of three women uh, going into uh, Jordan. But I want to talk mainly about Zero Motivation. Have any of you uh, heard of that movie? So we're going to see a short... Uh, the trailer is really good, so we're just going to see a piece of that trailer so you know what we're talking about, and it will also give you the gist of kind of what this is about. Okay, so you get the gist of this. Um, literally the first movie that even portrayed uh, women in the army, which even when they are portrayed these days, they're usually seen in combat. That's a very small percentage. Most of them are in these ridiculous jobs serving coffee to other people and doing paperwork. And an interesting thing to know about this movie, which won a ton of prizes, all the movies I showed you uh, that were done in the 2000s, they got all their gear, equipment, and uniforms from the Israeli army. The army just gives that, okay, to the movies. This is the only Israeli film which the army refused to give the costumes to. Now you're laughing, but I think it gives us a little bit of an insight of the place of women in this thing and how the importance or lack of importance people see in portraying this, which is 
the life of most women that go uh, through the army, it's, it's a kind of black comedy. If you haven't seen it, it's pretty fascinating. I thought that like it wouldn't make much sense to non-Israelis, but I went with an American to see it. It was an interesting conversation uh, after that. Um, back to... So I don't know if you heard of Ronit El-Kabetz or any of her movies. She passed at a very young age, four years ago, when she was 51. She died of cancer. She was an amazing movie star. Um, just so you understand the magnitude of who she was, when she passed, there was a eulogy for her in Cannes. Um, her last role was actually on French TV. She's of Moroccan descendant and uh, fluent in French. And these are, this is a trilogy of films that she created together with her brother, who's the director, Shlomi El-Kabetz, all about women and really shifted a lot of the place of women in the movies. Um, get uh, all happens around divorce and the Jewish law of divorce. And actually it all happens, almost all of it happens in the, in the um, religious courtroom. It's a very stifling movie, um, very powerful. Um, and here we see, and, and once again, each of these movies open a window to a different society, and we're seeing here two movies, one of a, a gay romance within the ultra-Orthodox society, and another one, Fill the Void, you might have heard of it, by Rama Bullstein, um, also about a bride-to-be in the ultra-Orthodox society. Um, and these movies kind of opened up a window into this... Uh, um, I'd say part of society that even for Israelis is very, very much cut off. And it leads us to something that uh, I'm guessing most of you uh, have seen, and we're moving to TV, Shtisel and Fauda. And I'm putting them side by side, because if you look, um, this whole idea of religion and military, it doesn't leave much space for women in the culture. Um, uh, they're in the back, or they're the second players, or kind of um, uh, have these various roles, um, and I want to actually show a scene from Fauda, uh, a tiny, tiny scene. Oh no, ah, I just realized we switched computers and it was on my Netflix. Okay, I'm not going to show it for sake of time. Um, at the end, if we have a little more time, I will, okay? Um, just for sake of time. Have any of you seen Fauda? Okay, so it's, it's a TV series um, uh, following uh, secret missions um, and kind of, um, I don't know even how to explain that, uh, ex-territory kind of secret missions between like in the, in the territories and specific characters that are going under undercover. Um, and also here, I mean, the role of women is very much contested, uh, which makes sense in a society that is governed by religion and military and kind of trying to figure those things out. Um, okay, and we're going to our last section, which is also mostly videos and fun, and I wanted to give it like the most uh, place. And we're gonna talk a little about race and minorities and identities. Uh, Rose Fostanis is a Filipino uh, woman who won the first Israeli X Factor. Have you heard of X Factor? X Factor is it's kind of a parallel to American Idol. It also happens, I think, in America, but it started in Britain. Um, so it's a parallel. Um, and she won the, the first Israeli X Factor, a woman from the Philippines. 
However, she wasn't a citizen and was supposed to be deported. She then, she was a cleaner and caregiver in Israel that then won uh, the contest. And there was this whole thing of what do we do now, right? Because she won the contest, what, what do we do? She ended up receiving like a year artist visa, but I, by 2013, she's now returned to the Philippines. She lives there, works there, and sometimes performs a little. And I want to see a clip from that same, um, one moment, that same competition by a group. One, two, three, four. Some nights I stay up cashing in my bad luck. Some nights I call it a drop. Some nights I wish that my lips could build a castle. Some nights I wish they just fall off. But I still wake up. I still see your ghost. Oh Lord, I'm still not sure what I stand for for a moment because I think first of all it's beautiful that they're singing I, I'm still not sure what I stand for um, true to x-factor tradition each of these boys came to the audition separately and they were put together as a little group by one of the judges on the program that called them fusion um, and they're actually American Israeli that is actually from um, Sudan uh, a refugee uh, or um, infiltrator, depending on how you want to use the term, a French Jewish guy, a Yemenite Israeli, and another American. Okay, and they're all participating in this Israeli uh, uh, X Factor, and to me, also wonderful that they're singing. I don't know what I stand for. Okay, and what is this when we say Israel? And if you think of it, up until now. Um, I've been talking about Israeli culture, and most of what we've been seeing has been uh, Jewish, right? And Israel is 80% Jewish, but 20% of Israeli population isn't Jewish. So where does that come to play? Like, where, where, does it, where do we see that? Um, and it's interesting because I believe that we could end this lecture without me even mentioning that, and none of you would have found that strange, right? Because we're very, very used to think of Israel as Jewish and democratic, remember the Bill of Loyalty in the Arts, right? And I want us to see a, uh, a piece by um, a group called System Ali. Um, we'll see a little and then I'll, I'll explain who they are. I'll talk a little and then I'll put it back. Oh. What language is this? Arabic. So I'll put it back on in a moment. System Ali has, you can see all the group members, uh, um, Jewish, Palestinian, Russian, Israeli, like a mix of everything. They sing in all the languages, actually, uh, and also do a lot of workshops. They're pretty amazing, and a lot of the time, one moment, 
So, so this is sorry. Um, so it's kind of a way to see for a moment how music can bring people together and how this group works together in all of these languages. It's also a good way to understand the exception to the rule because um, it's a one like it's a very very rare uh, thing to have. Um, for those of you who will be coming tomorrow lunch and evening, we'll be diving into these issues a little more through the arts. One moment. Spinning around the block of our souls like a hawk as our ministers mop up blood with theoretical talk. You know they can't hear anything but fear when you're your body in shock. Now on the left, on the right, all the kings are cons in this political ping-pong. We nobody's gone. We are ten pounds restating our 23rd song in the persistence of resistance systems rock as a song. With the screech of the chalk on the blackboard of the white and blue behind the long lines of lies Okay, if we went on, you'd hear Russian, and then again Arabic, and then again Hebrew. So, kind of gives you an idea. Um, they do amazing work. They used to reside, like their studio was in Jaffa, but it became uh, so contested that they had to move uh, out of there. That's how rare this uh, situation is. Uh, we're moving on. One moment. I need to see. Okay. Give me a second here. Okay, um, so System Ali, to the left is Dam, a rapper group from Lod, or the way you'd say it in Arabic, Lid, which is a Jewish and Arab or Jewish and Palestinian neighborhood. Um, and their group is, it's a rapper group in Arabic. It's very interesting. They're worldwide known and almost no Israeli Jews know them. Um, so just kind of to, ooh, later. Okay. Um, and once again, if we go back to the kind of story that we know about Israel, the early stories, we mostly hear of European Jews settling the land, right? But more than 50% of Israeli Jews aren't white. They're Jews that are descended of Arab-speaking countries, Morocco, Egypt, Iraq, Iran, Yemen, and so on. And the major term uh, we use in Israel to divide these groups, which are very much divided, we call Ashkenazi and Mizrahi. Ashkenazi is the term Ashkenaz, referring mainly to Jews uh, of European descendant. And Mizrahi literally means either Eastern or Oriental. And it's a word coined by European Jews that groups together all these Jews from the different uh, Arab descendant countries that I mentioned, which, by the way, geographically doesn't make sense to group them all as Eastern, right? does not make sense and it was used as a very derogatory term but was reappropriated by the Mizrahi community um, as a term of pride and I'm showing here two things on the top you see Sarit Haddad who started becoming famous in the beginning of the 90s and became one of the major singers that also brought the Mizrahi music into pop culture and shifted or turned the tables on the hegemony of European culture. And below, I want us to see, Omer Adam is the like most, like highest pay, best-selling, uh, singer in Israel um, and his clip which I don't know if you saw made a huge difference one moment no not here 
here. We're going to see a piece of this clip from... So there are a few very crazy things about this clip and song that came out for the Pride Parade in 2014. And first of it was that the major Israeli Mizrahi singer lent his song, his voice, and himself to the Gay Pride Parade, which, I mean, if you think of, uh, of kind of masculinity uh, in the more Arab cultures and how that fits with trans, gay, and gender-fluid community, that was unseen before, but because of its popularity, it created a huge uh, shift. And you, can, you heard what he was saying, welcome to the Middle East, okay? So we have a whole population that like, Arabic is their, first, their parents' first language. They don't speak Arabic because their parents were ashamed of it because of everything that happened in the country. And suddenly we have, through mu music, a shift in this. And you can also see uh, the video itself in terms of uh, uh, gender uh, and masculine, feminine roles had quite an impact. Uh, uh, one moment. Okay, um, and we're moving. Static and Ben Elad have been the, the craze in the last uh, few years. They also signed the largest music contract um, uh, to ever be signed by Israelis. It was a five million uh, um, contract to produce songs over the next few years. I want to I want to show you a clip. And by the way, I'll just say if you look at them, I had. Um, uh, a friend of mine told me she was sitting at the Maccabiya uh, with some guests from America and they came up to sing and they're the latest craze and he leaned towards her and asked, are they even Jewish? Okay, because we're so used to seeing white European, which is a question that to me was pretty fascinating. Um, and I want us to see a short clip by them, just so you understand kind of the aesthetics and where it's going, not this. And you can hear the, the music and the intonation, they don't come from Europe, right? Do you understand what I mean? This is Hebrew, by the way. But you can see even by the aesthetics what a crazy fusion it is between international pop culture, Hebrew language, the tunes or the, the rhythm that is completely Middle Eastern, um, and the aesthetics which could remind you of kind of more rapper culture in the US. Uh, Stop this. Okay. 
We have a, a short time, and I want to show you a few more things before we move to questions. And this is, I'll put it up in a moment, by a group uh, called Ewa, three uh, Yemenite sisters who became the latest craze. This is the song, the single, that really uh, put them on the map. And they're singing in Yemenite. When I say Yemenite, it's like the Jewish Arabic dialect of Yemen, if that wasn't clear. Now remember the Yemenite dancing suddenly coming back here, traditional Yemenite dancing in pop culture with a crazy fusion. Okay. I kind of feel bad for taking away these like music videos. This clip came out a week ago by an artist called Victoria Hanna who's amazing. She grew up in Mer Sharim, ultra-Orthodox, religious Sephardic community. She's a voice artist. Um, I'll put it on in a moment. This clip was created by three Betzalel students, and it's all in Aramaic. And this is pop culture right now in Israel, talking about Oraita. Oraita is the Torah, the Bible. Okay, and once again, you can see how the Mizrahi, the Eastern culture with the religious culture all coming into pop culture. I'll just give you a few more seconds of this beautiful song. She's literally singing in Aramaic. And this is Israeli pop culture as of a week ago. Okay. Does this look like Israeli culture? It doesn't, but it is. It's Esther Rada, an Ethiopian Israeli singer who's truly amazing. I'll put a little bit more of it so you can hear and then I'll say a few words. So in many ways, Ethiopian culture, once again, with issues between, I'd say, white and black in Israel, um, and Black Lives Matter has a lot of influence on what's happening in Israel, too. It's a different story, but there are parallels. And the Ethiopian community, also, Jewish community, also suffered from a lot of racism. And the, the artists um, very often have songs 
in Hebrew, in Amharit, which is the Ethiopian uh, language, and very often in English. Estelle Rada was one of the like first Ethiopian artists that really, really made it. And I want to show you a new, rec very recent uh, Ethiopian uh, singer named Aviva. And we're going to see a clip of hers. That's her, the singer. Give you all of my trust. She gave me promises in return. Guess that you never thought I wouldn't make it on my own. And when you opened the door for me, I thought I had a real chance to show I'm worth just like you. But you pushed me to the edge. Been sitting here for too long. Got me thinking I won't make it. My fear, my doubt only make you stronger. See, time will prove that you've been wrong. So you can see some of these issues, and this could be relevant in the U.S. these days right now, and it's happening in Israel uh, too with a community that is finding their voice. You can see even the traditional um, uh, instrument over there, and it's also interesting to see over time how with Estelle Rada, which was very estranged from her Ethiopian heritage, at least until also a trip she took back to Ethiopia and kind of relearning her own culture, the next generation is already very much in tune with it, but you can still see the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew English there. Uh, one moment. You guys are doing really well and we're almost at the end, just so like you're calm. I don't know, I'm, like asking a lot of you. Um, this one is, yes, let me just check, yes, okay. So yeah, this is our last clip. Um, have you heard of the Eurovision? Yes. Yes, uh, so the last one, the Eurovision is like the largest music contest in the world, but America isn't part of it, that's why I asked. Um, and uh, the previous year, Israel won the contest, so this year it was hosted uh, in Israel. And towards the Eurovision, there's a, like a local American Idol type of thing to choose the people that will be uh, singing uh, or representing Israel in the contest. And what I want to show you um, is not the group that won. They didn't represent us. Uh, but have ever any of you heard of the Shalva ba Band? Shalva Band? Okay. So we're going to see their performance and then I'll talk. Through the door 
So this group is actually a music group that was founded in the organization called Chalva, which is an organization residing in Jerusalem that brings together people with various disabilities. The people there, both of them are blind and with Down syndrome and various uh, disabilities. And that music group has been like doing music for quite a few years, but then they took over Israel by a storm in this competition. They're actually touring Europe right now, uh, doing amazing music, but once again showing uh, a lot about inclusivity. It's also mixed in terms of religious and secular, and also you can see uh, um, uh, in terms of Jewish, non-Jewish, and once again the question of what, what makes Israeli culture into, into what it is. Um, so maybe a moment more of this. Okay, so, um, you made it, we made it. Uh, <laughs> and, I, and I'll just say, I think what I'd love to do also, just so you know, I think I'll try and send Ari the links to all the videos uh, so that you can just enjoy the playlist because it's beautiful music and I'd love for you to have it and enjoy it. Um, why is this not moving? So, I mean, these are, okay. Um, we have a few minutes. Uh, if there are any questions or comments or, yeah. What are the two sessions tomorrow going to consist of? I mean, I know you gave a sort of little touchstone, but. Thank you. So, um, uh, the first session at lunchtime will be Israeli art as a window to mainly social issues uh, in Israel. It's going to be focused through fine arts only, not the different mediums, and it's going to look at different social issues. And the evening lecture uh, is going to touch on 
the relationship to the land and mainly the conflict also through fine arts, so a completely different angle of looking at the conflict through both uh, Jewish-Israeli and Palestinian art. So we're kind of, today was kind of starting from a very, very wide picture and each lecture is gonna zoom in a little more. I had a couple of observations I was hoping you could comment on. In the first, with regard to the dance, the original circle dance in the, in the Israeli folklore, you described it as a dance of equality. There's nothing in the center and everyone's in a circle. And yet at the same time I'm looking at that and I'm thinking it's, could it also be seen as a dance of exclusion in a sense that in order to break into a circle dance, if you come upon one, you've got to tap on someone's shoulder or, or ask to be let in. And so is that a metaphor, perhaps a little bit of what was going on at that point in Israel um, as far as, as us against them or? So um, first of all, I don't want to take it too far with the metaphors and stuff, but I will say that in any circle dance, if you tap, you're in, right? It requires that like request, but I've never seen a circle dance where you can't join, like you're tap you in. Um, and so, um, uh, yeah, I, I'd say, but in terms of metaphors and what it resembles, and I'd say the, the, the major thing would be the collective versus the individual, and that's, that comes to play also in earlier Israeli poetry versus uh, uh, nowadays where it was always anachnu, we, the plural, uh, and it took quite a few decades until it changed into ani, into the individual. And to follow up on that, to me, that's a happier, it's a, it's a happier dance. I know later on it seems it's become more critical and it's, and that got me to the last observation, which is that song, This is the Middle East, um, it's not, it's Israel. And I, I don't know if Israel's, Israelis and people who are self-critical in Israel about society and all its problems really understand that that particular video and that song probably couldn't happen anywhere else in the Middle East but Israel without people being thrown in prison or possibly killed. And, and I'm wondering if you could comment on that. Absolutely. I think there's a constant uh, question and battle that uh, across the board in Israel of, are we European? We enter the Eurovision. Or are we in the Middle East? And saying it's not the Middle East kind of also takes away from that over 50% of population that are descendants of Arab countries, part of them in the Middle East. And there's a lot of like this estrangement from their own culture. Uh, more than 50% of Jewish Israelis are not European. Um, it's true that Israel is uh, a phenomena that is different than other countries, but I do also want to say that this thing of other countries and that type of culture. I was in Amman and went to gay clubs in Amman. Um, I think our understanding of what's possible and not possible in those countries, and I'm not saying we're at the same place, but I think um, this, this notion of we are part of the Middle East is an important one to contest with if we want to figure out our place, because geographically we are in the Middle East. Um, and Jews come from all countries, also Arab-speaking countries, and when we put a huge divide between us and them, we're actually dividing within Jewish society, making people estranged from their own familial culture, and also possibly missing opportunities of bridges uh, within our society. But I think, um, you know, there are many songs about that, uh, which 
even um, Pozelo Uganda or Lamalo Uganda, why not Uganda? Uh, popular or Pozelo Europa here is not Europe. So that question appears in various uh, places in Israeli culture, and it's definitely an ongoing one. We have time for just a few quick last questions. It's uh, very much to Israel's credit, apparently, that Shoshana Damari, who came from a Yemenite background, as most of you know, was the most popular singer of her day, despite the fact that it's an Ashkenazi dominant culture. And I would just like to hear what you have to say about that, because it appears that you're representing um, the exposure to, to, or the acceptance to Yemenite culture at a much later date, how did she become as great as she was? So that's first. It's beautiful that they say that. There are two pairs of singers uh, that show that we had Shoshana Damari and Yafa Yarkoni, uh, the two the two great ones. So Shoshana Damari of a Yemenite family, Yafa Yarkoni, uh, Russian European, and then later in time, Yerdena Arazi and Ofra Chaza. Once again, one Yemenite, uh, Ofra Chaza, also became known worldwide, and Yerdena Arazi kind of representing the more European. So we did have those pairs. Um, and, and yet even then it was this rivalry and battle. You kind of chose which one you were backing. I mean, at my younger age, it was Yerdena Razi of Chaza, and like you were a fan of either or. Um, I think this whole issue of what culture is accepted um, doesn't, you know, I portrayed a kind of almost linear uh, kind of movement and it's obviously not exactly like that, I would say it still is that the dominant culture was for a very, very long time the European one with a few exceptions to the rule, while as we're seeing a shift in that and a more, I'd say, uh, open field game, maybe that's what's changed, like less exceptions to the rule and more, more players on the field. Last question. I don't know how political you want to get. Uh, but in the last several months, the leader of Israel said there are Jews and there are Arabs and the Arabs don't count. So how do you fit that in to this, we're in the Middle East? Okay. Um, I'll say this. First of all, what I'm answering is my own opinion. I'm not representing anyone. Um, and, and to ask how political you want to get, I don't think there's a way of being not political. Everything is political. Uh, any uh, wording I chose in one of those, these to write refugees protest, right? That's a political choice. I could have written infiltrators uh, protest. And I think that's the first thing and very important that whenever we speak about Israel, there, there's no apolitical or objective. Every word is a choice. Um, so this is me answering personally. Um, my opinions do not line up with the ones of my government. I would be considered by many far left um, in many, many ways, yet I'm standing here and talking with a lot of pride of Israeli culture. Um, and in the same way what I answered about we are in the Middle East, that's my opinion. Uh, and that's why I showed here groups like System Ali, um, and that's why I talk about Jews as a multicultural uh, people uh, that aren't only European and white. I, I wish, personally, 
that the government would be more close to my opinions. I don't live in that world yet. Um, um, I will say, and maybe I'll use language as, as a way to answer that more specifically. Um, most Israelis, 99.5%, me including, don't speak Arabic. Okay? Um, and, and that's a huge barrier. Um, if we would speak Arabic, I think many things uh, would change. And I believe that locality is important in the same way that your American Jews, sometimes Jewish Americans, sometimes American Jews, and you're from California, and you're from Orange County, and you have this very, very specific community and locality is important. And in that way, it's important to me. And I share, for instance, Hebrew language with Palestinians living in Tel Aviv, right? I converse with them in a language I can't have a conversation with you. They're part of my culture in a very, very deep way. Um, so I, I can't and I don't want to ignore that. Um, we live in a time where uh, um, I can't speak or I feel it's very hard for me to speak in the name of my state. Okay, I'm, I'm making a difference between my state, my country, and my land. And we'll, I'll be talking a little more about that in the last lecture. Um, and I imagine that at least for some of you, that distinction between the government and your country has become a clearer one with the last administration. Um, uh, and I think that's interesting. It, I can say at least for me, it allowed for sometimes an easier conversation with American Jews. Uh, regarding this conflicted uh, situation. Does that answer? Okay. So uh, before I wrap up, why didn't the Shalva band win the competition and represent Israel? Wouldn't, and, and if they had done that, would they have won Eurovision? Okay, so the popular uh, answer to that is we couldn't afford winning another year. <laughs> and so both the Shalva group and another singer were way better than um, the, the guy that actually won, but everyone was totally mortified by the thought that um, uh, we'd win again. The last time that happened, because Israel won the Eurovision in 70-something with the song Chai, which Ofra Chaza uh, was leading, and we won the year after, but we gave it away. We said, like, we cannot host it, this again. The other reason uh, is actually really interesting. The group is also religious, and Eurovision the, is traditionally held on Saturday night, which is Motza'e Shabbat, the end of Shabbat, but all the rehearsals happen on Shabbat. So it was clear at some point that the Shalva group won't be uh, going to the finals for that reason. They did take part in the semi-finals and performed, but that was one of the major reasons. It was like they wouldn't uh, perform on Shabbat. I want to thank you for a thank great you. presentation. You, uh, you did not disappoint, so I'm glad we went to Israel. We found you in Israel. We brought you here and we're gonna come back. So this is an example of the type of, of, of uh, educator and uh, you know, program that we offer in Israel. You get to hang out on the streets of Tel Aviv with an artist who can teach art and take you to museums and show you uh, the art uh, in Israel. 
And those of you coming to with us in Israel in 2020 will have opportunities to, to do more programs in Israel with Shirel. I'll tell you that we are focusing on Israeli culture and Israel a bit this year leading up to our trip in 2020. And these issues will come back obviously the next uh, day when we have two programs with Shirel. But also in September, we're bringing uh, from Brandeis University. She's doing a two-part mini-series about some of these topics focusing in uh, on them. One is called Black is the New Black, Ultra-Orthodox Jews, Israel, and the Globalization of Television. And the second is Pop Toys and Power Politics, Israel and the Eurovision Song Contest. I want to be here. You'll come back. Sounds amazing. Okay, thank you all for coming out tonight. We'll see you tomorrow.